and welcome to my podcast, John Scott Lawton's English You Know. In this different, rather unusual episode, I'm actually interviewed by one of my students, Maria, about my work, my career, my travels, and my adventures around the world, living in almost every continent um, over the course of my lifetime. Um, this isn't a self-promotion episode. It really is just an opportunity uh, to give an advanced level student the chance to ask questions, because very often in a teaching and learning situation, students are taught how to answer questions, but rarely taught how to ask them, which clearly in a natural dialogue is something you'd want to learn. So I hope you find this episode of, of interest. It is intended to improve listening skills practice for students who might be studying for the Cambridge Advanced Certificate, for example, in listening. And this is something, hopefully, which will add to the resources that exist for people to improve and pick up on listening skills. So thank you very much. I hope you enjoy the podcast series and I hope you enjoy something of this episode as I'm interviewed by Maria. Thank you. So hello, Maria, and thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. There's a slight change today. I'm going to be interviewed by you, which is really nice. Um, gives me an opportunity to share some of my experiences, but more important, uh, gives you uh, the opportunity as one of my listeners to be in control of the conversation. So uh, that's that's really good. So thank you very much for agreeing to do this with me. And um, by all means, please fire away with your first question. Yeah, uh, thank you, John, and welcome, everyone. So I'm really glad to giving that you gave me this opportunity to interview you. Uh, yeah, basically, usually it works the other way around. <laughs> but uh, now I feel that I can get you get to know you better. And so um, just for a quick warm up, <laughs> mm -hmm. let's start. Let's start with the first question and uh, tell me. Uh, something about you. So who is a John Scott Lawton now? Okay, now, now I'm 64 years of age, um, which feels incredible because mentally, I don't feel 64 years of age. I feel still like a young person. Um, many people say that as you get older. Uh, my body certainly feels 64 years of age. Um, we've just been having a conversation about a particular health problem that I have. And that's the biggest difference I've noticed with aging is that, you know, actively, you know, I'm, I'm nowhere near as active as I used to be physically. And that worries me because I used to be very fit. Um, I put on weight again after having lost weight. So there are these kind of challenges as you get older. And I'm certainly beginning to think about that and reflect about that and see which what I can do about what things um, we just mentioned now. Is it possible to stop time? Not sure it is, but um, sometimes I wish it was possible to stop time um, or at least to slow it down a little bit mm. um, so that's me i'm older than i want to be I'm not sure if that's philosophically possible but um mentally alert yet uh, struggling physically and need to do something about it mm -hmm. well well very interesting but um i would like maybe to uh get 
more information about your uh, working experience because I know that you went through a lot of <laughs> uh, different jobs, uh, different countries. So um, let's start and move back in time mm -hmm. uh, right after your graduation. So can you tell me what was your first working experience and whether it's true that it's like the first love that you never forget about it? <laughs> okay, good point. Um... Well, I did jobs while I was at university and I'd done some part-time jobs before I went to university, things like working in a brickworks, making bricks, um, delivering televisions in the days when people rented a television. That shows how old I am. Um, and I also worked in a bakery while I was at university. So not the same as now where most students have to work in order to survive financially. I had a choice and because I like to travel even then, I decided I would work part-time at university. After university, it was a very difficult time in Great Britain because the Conservative Party had just come to power under Margaret Thatcher, who many listeners will have heard of. I wasn't a particular fan either of the Conservative Party or Margaret Thatcher, not least because her economic policies meant that jobs in Britain were very hard to find, particularly where I lived in the north of England. And I had already decided I wanted to travel and during my final year at university, I had been interviewed by a voluntary organization called Voluntary Service Overseas. Now, they placed teachers, and I, I thought of being a teacher, um, overseas to work in developing countries, as they were referred to then, or even third world countries, which seems even worse. And we had meetings and we had a training course in August 1979. By the end of August 1979, I was embarking on my first full paid, it was paid job in Kenya teaching English. So that ended up lasting two and a half years. And to answer your fundamental question, was it was my first job stroke love my favorite one? You know what, I would have to say yes. Wow, very interesting. And yeah, I, I checked your LinkedIn profile and I saw that you your first full-time working experience was in Kenya. So I was always wondering what drives you to, to move there. Mm -hmm. And um, when you, again, uh, look back, uh, what was the, the best and worst experience from Kenya? Best experience, I would say, was the teaching because it gave me a lifelong love of language. You know, I've always loved language since. When I worked there in a village community near Melindi, towards the coast, it was not at the coast, but it, oh, on the coast, it was near the coast. And I had to learn Kiswahili pretty quickly because very few people spoke English. And indeed, Kiswahili, which was the national language, wasn't spoken uh, freely by everybody in terms of their preferred language, was Kigiriyama which strangely wasn't written down. So it was quite hard to learn. You couldn't learn it from a book. I had to learn it by interaction with children and adults around the community. But I did learn enough to get by. But I also kept learning Kiswahili. And it may sound very strange, but I also uh, learned quite a lot of Japanese language because co-volunteers in the school were from Japan. They were meant to teach in English, but they struggled with the English language. So I taught them English. In return, they taught me Japanese in Kenya. So work that one out. There was a lot of language going on. So um, that was probably the best aspect, the learning, the teaching, the interaction with local people. That was really the best. The worst, probably the illnesses I acquired. 
I picked up several illnesses, malaria, amoebic dysentery, hepatitis, non-infective A, pretty bad stuff. Um, and, you know, some of those have lasted with me forever. I think the, the malaria recurred. It came back several times for several years after I was in Kenya. And the hepatitis was annoying because on my return to Britain, I couldn't drink for at least a year, maybe 18 months, which meant all the weddings I went to, I was the only one not drinking. So that was pretty boring at that time. <laughs> um, so that the best, definitely the, the learning and the teaching, the worst, the illnesses. And uh, who did you teach? I taught mostly children, but I did also teach some adult literacy work. Um, I did teach some adults to read, not strangely, but effectively in Kiswahili, which was really enjoyable. But children had to learn in English, um, particularly about six or seven of their subjects, including history and geography, uh, indeed maths and science, they were taught in English. So the language of instruction, the teaching language was English. Um, I taught history, geography and English language and the pupils ranged in age from youngest would have been about 11 or 12. These are secondary age pupils. The oldest would have been in their early 20s because the rule was you had to do four years, I think, primary education, which was free. And then you had to pay for your secondary education. Now, many families couldn't afford to, if they had several children, they couldn't afford to send them all to school. Unfortunately, there was a bias towards boys being sent to that school and not girls. So there were far fewer female pupils than there were male pupils, which was sad. And mm -hmm. their age ranges, as I say, were determined by how many years primary school they'd had and then at what age they could afford uh, they had the money to go to secondary school. Mm -hmm. So I believe that very interesting experience in your life. Uh, however, I mean, we can do another podcast just about the Kenya because this is something which um, our listeners might be very interested in. Uh, but maybe let's move a little bit. And what was the reason that you um, you quit the job and uh, moved further? And what was your next steps? What were your next steps? The, ne the next step was an interesting one. Um... And quite a difficult one at the time. I look back and laugh because I have a nickname called Lucky Lawton. Um, and it's rather sarcastic, I think, because I don't always have the best of luck. And in fact, sometimes I say if I had no bad luck, I would have no luck at all. But um, I, I got ill, as I said, in my third year in Kenya. I had extended. Most people just did two years, but I really enjoyed it. So I wanted to carry on. So I did a third year. They struggled to find me a placement for that third year. The school I was due to go to in Samburu in the desert towards the north of Kenya, that fell through for some reason. Um, I did do a little bit of assistant field officer work, finding new projects, new volunteer placements. I really enjoyed that. But I got ill, so I had to leave because I, I couldn't work. And I ended up strangely heading for Australia. Um I was put on a flight to Mumbai, then Bombay from Nairobi. I was actually in a baggage trolley because I was probably under the influence of alcohol. Um, didn't enjoy that flight, what I can remember about it. Spent a couple of days in Bombay, still ill. Got to Singapore, still not well. Went from Singapore to Sarawak, which is in East Malaysia. Saw a friend there for a couple of weeks and then took off from Sarawak to uh, Sydney. 
had to get off the plane and they said where have you been and i said africa and india okay go in that room well in that room you were investigated to see how just how ill you were and luckily i had a pair of dark glasses on they were hiding my very yellow eyes unfortunately they didn't ask me to take the glasses off otherwise they'd have seen i was quite badly affected by hepatitis i was jaundiced my eyes were yellow and i do a trick at the moment where i put yellow coconut all sorts into my eye behind my glasses and say to my son oh i feel like i've got hepatitis again and that's exactly the color of my eyes or rather dull yellow so in melbourne i was uh, hospitalized i ended up in isolation for a couple of weeks they tried to get rid of the bugs in my stomach um when i left the plan when i left hospital the plan was to get a job in one of the mines earn a lot of money quickly to make up for the fact that i'd had nearly three years working in a volunteer wage but that didn't work because i was too weak and i ended up getting a job making shoes so i can claim to have been both a baker and a shoemaker all i need now is to learn how to make candlesticks then i could be all three in the famous nursery rhyme Okay, so we know that you you knew how to teach, how to bake, how to make shoes. Uh, but from your professional profile, I see that you were focusing on um, teaching. Yeah. And maybe you started with the children, but then you moved to um, adults. So what brings you there and what drives you? Uh, what was your personal motivation uh, for ending up teaching the adults? It's interesting. Again, a um, bit of bad luck, really. I, I applied for lots of jobs while I was in Kenya. Uh, I'd started, but I really applied for a lot of jobs when I was in Australia. And I wasn't actually a qualified teacher. So I, I felt the need to qualify rather the wrong way around. You know, nowadays, I would have preferred to have qualified before I went to teach in Kenya. Um, but I, I did that. I went to Manchester University, did a year's teacher training in teaching English overseas with the full intention of either staying in the UK and teaching uh, in a school where there were many uh, refugee or migrant or immigrant children or traveling abroad again. As it happens, I had a, a girlfriend at the time. She was coming back from Kenya. So I thought, OK, stay in England, applied for jobs in England, but nobody would recognize the teaching I had done in Kenya either because I'd done it as an unqualified person or, as I fear, they didn't recognize that teaching overseas was of any value to children in Britain, which was wrong because it was a challenging curriculum. It was a British curriculum. The qualifications the children had to sit for were Cambridge qualifications, so it was a very hard syllabus for them. Um, and I, I felt I was a professional person, albeit I wasn't qualified. So I didn't get a job teaching children. I got a job working in an adult education center where we were teaching english to people working in industrial companies where mm -hmm. they may have arrived in britain without any english language and had to acquire language skills to uh, fulfill their job so that was called an industrial language training unit and it did exactly what it says on its name taught language in industry and i did that for three and a half years although it changed from being a language teaching institution into being one working on race equality. Because when I worked with many of the people, many of whom were black or Asian, they would say the problem in this company is not that we don't speak English. The problem is the discrimination we face from our fellow white colleagues or our white management or the company as a whole. So please don't just think it's a language issue with us. Do something about the racism we face on a day-to-day -day basis. 
So the organization I work for trained and changed into being a training organization where we talked about race equality, cultural awareness, cross-cultural communication, um, the difficulties that migrant workers faced or immigrant workers. And that was what I did for three and a half years. Pretty tough work, but, but very enjoyable. And I learned a lot. Yeah, very interesting topic, uh, because if I just imagine that at that time you were talking about the discrimination and you were trying to solve the situation of discrimination in Slovakia, we were not even able to think about uh, going abroad, right? Yeah. And I wasn't even born, so <laughs> that's that's very, very interesting. And uh, what what you told me... Um, you also spent some time of your life and your professional career in the US. Uh, so did you experience the American dream? And can you tell me more about this experience? <laughs> I don't want to say the American dream turned out to be a nightmare, but personally, it didn't go as planned. And I was due to get married over there and that didn't happen. And that meant I couldn't work. So I didn't have a green card. All things are connected. Um, I did do some teaching. I taught, uh, again, adult literacy to some Spanish speakers in the, the Santa Barbara County Library. I really enjoyed that um, on a one-to-one -one basis. These, again, were migrant workers or people who'd lived in America for a long time but hadn't acquired, in their case, American English. So that was a nice challenge, teaching American English as a British English speaker. I uh, had to learn to swallow uh, my pride and teach uh, spellings, which are different to British spellings, but that was fine. No use teaching people British spellings in America. Um, so that was very enjoyable. It didn't work out, but then it was a nice experience. I stayed there the maximum three months. Um, Santa Barbara is a beautiful part of the world. California is very nice. I was surprised how gray and cold the Pacific Ocean was at that point, because I've been used to the Indian Ocean, which is nice and warm. But of course, mm -hmm. the Pacific takes its waters down from the uh, Arctic Circle. So whale watching was very nice. Then I realized this water is very cold. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so no, no swimming at the time for you? No, one because of the <laughs> whales that came right into shore. And I thought that's interesting. And second, the coldness of it put me off um, swimming in the sea. But nice beaches nonetheless mm -hmm. and uh, when you compare uh, the the culture of uh, of uh, the american and the uk um, learners uh, what are the uh, the thing that they have common and what were maybe the challenges for you you were facing at the time I've not had many American learners. I did uh, teach somebody in Canada, but he was Slovak, so that was interesting. Um, <laughs> American learners that I did teach on a one-to-one -one basis as adult learners, again, just as motivated as, as most of my other learners, really. Keen to learn, wanted to learn, um, realized that if they did learn, it may help them access employment and services a bit more easily, a bit more readily. Um, so the motivation of learners, I think, is common across the world. Anybody, particularly as an adult, who does something about developing their basic skills, if you like, of reading and writing, they have only to be admired, you know, not pitied, because they are really putting themselves uh, on the line to say, look, I know I don't have these skills. It's a little bit like me learning Slovak. I need to acquire these skills. And, you know, please don't treat me like a child. Recognize that I'm an adult. 
there is a difference between teaching children and teaching adults uh, and people want that respect so that that was what i noticed as common um difference in america as i said i've already mentioned the spelling you know that was just something i had to get used to that was fine but also the grammatical structure of american english is different to british english and that's not always recognized and when you read newspaper articles from the new york times compared to the british times for example or financial times which is partly global but you can tell when an article has been written by an american journalist versus when it's been written by a british journalist and that's a subtlety of english or a nuance that i don't think many people accept or realize but uh, it's there and it can make things a little difficult if you're used to more to one more than the other so it's good to expose learners to writing in english from many different continents because of course english is spoken all over the world but it is spoken differently all over the world Um, thank you for mentioning this because I, I never know. <laughs> I didn't know. So that's something I, I will learn from today's podcast as well. Um, and then uh, we mentioned the Kenya, uh, the Australia, then the US. And then is it the UK your final destination? <laughs> well, you've caught me in UK at the moment. Um, simply because, uh, sadly, because my father died just before Christmas. So I'm here at the moment. But I am going back to Slovakia. Um, I'm, of course, watching what's happening on the Ukraine situation. But I will be coming back to Slovakia. Um, hopefully, it's where I will, if not make my home, certainly build a house. I think my home will always you know, psychologically be Britain. I always not end up back here, but I always sort of think that looking out at the window now, beautiful green landscape in in the middle of England you know it is gorgeous it's beautiful but my partner is in Slovakia so I aim to go back to Slovakia um, to live partly in Bratislava but also in a small village north of Bratislava near Nitra so um, I'm traveling again you know so that's the exciting thing I'm not <laughs> not staying still um, I will be on the move and it will be pretty short shortly I'll be going back to Slovakia <laughs> I mean, from, from your experience and from your professional life, um, what was the reason uh, for you to decide that uh, it was a time to quit the job and move further? Sometimes I had no choice, to be quite honest, um, particularly my last paid employment. Um, the least said about which the better. Um, all I will say is that I, the illness I have now started to get progressively worse and was very bad about two and a half years ago to the extent where you know i was very very seriously ill hospitalized and um, didn't quite realize how ill i was until i started watching a british tv series called 24 hours in a and e which is 24 hours in accident and emergency and all these people come in with either a trauma or a health problem and they're treated in st george's hospital in london and people you know everybody's raves about the British National Health Service, and at the emergency level, it is fantastic. But they didn't manage to join the dots with my condition between my kidney, let's say, and something else. And it meant that I got progressively worse very quickly, including sepsis. Now, on this program, on TV, they say sepsis is very, very serious. Well, I could tell you that because my leg went purple. It swelled to being twice its size, and I nearly lost the leg. So that's how bad I was in a very quick, rapid period of time so 
lost a job because of that, I believe, but others would say it was underperformance. I don't actually believe that, but I'll just put that out there. Um, before that, again, restructuring um, opportunities came along for what's called um, short-term work. So two years at a time, maybe a short-term contract. That was often attractive because I wasn't sure whether or not I would be traveling again. So that happened in a couple of jobs. And other jobs where, quite frankly, you know, after a certain number of years, you've had enough and you need to change. You've got to move on. You've got to go somewhere else. Sometimes it can be the relationships that break down at work or it can be a toxic environment that it is not safe to stay in and you have to leave. Or it can simply be that the company restructures, reorganizes, and um, you're not required. So on a couple of occasions, I have been made redundant, which means I've lost my job. Some would say through no fault of my own. I never ascribe fault or blame, but times change. And particularly in today's work and workplace, you've got to be adaptable. You've got to be flexible. I always say to people nowadays, have a plan B and preferably a plan C and a plan D because you never know what's going to happen. Um, it's very uncertain times. On one level, it's very exciting. But on another, I wouldn't like to be starting my career again now because I think it is going to be a very challenging future and it is very uncertain. So anybody that needs some security uh, from their job, it's very hard. I think you'd be better off working for yourself because then you know nobody else can, unless you fail, uh, take your job away from you. Um, you will be in control. So if, if that's a major issue that people think about in their working careers, then look to work for yourself because that way you've only, you know, you are responsible for your own actions as an adult. Mm. Yeah, uh, not very optimistic <laughs> sentence from you. Um, but uh, I would like to go back because you mentioned the toxic environment and mm -hmm. uh, that's uh, when it's time to move on. Mm -hmm. um, how maybe you can, we can help you can help us and how you think we should recognize the toxic environment and what does toxic environment means for you yeah toxic environments they take many sh uh, shapes and forms often it's a lack of transparency not only from management management often gets the blame for a toxic environment but a toxic environment is one where colleagues um are not necessarily supportive of each other. Compet competition in a workplace is fine, but when it is to the extent that people don't support each other in their work, then that is problematic because all workplaces, no matter their size, depend on teams working effectively together. And of course, teams being well-managed and well-led. And there's quite a lot in the literature about the difference between management and leadership. And that is, again, as you say, subject of a whole new podcast. But I think toxic environments culturally develop over time. They can come from the top. They can be the chief executive being somebody who is particularly not an honest person, who's rather psychopathic at the worst extremes. And there is a correlation apparently between CEOs, chief executives and psychopaths. So be careful, you know, do the psychopath test. And if you think your boss is a psychopath, get out of there quickly because you're not going to change them. Uh, and you are going to be subject to daily sometimes abuse, which is not acceptable. At that abuse, which is part of the toxic environment, takes many different forms. Demeaning, that's putting somebody down, humiliating people, either by words or actions, ignoring people, that's off, that often happens. People say it happens about promotions, oh, I was ignored or passed over for promotion. That's one thing. You can be ignored in many different things. 
Um, so all of those contribute to a bad environment, lack of honesty, lack of transparency, meanness. That's one of the worst things where people are mean, where they're not kind to each other. Uh, and I'm not a soppy person. I'm not a soft person. But I think there are ways of dealing with people which are more human and more sensitive, which can be achieved, even in very difficult, challenging work environments. People can at least treat each other with respect. And everybody deserves that when they go to work. They don't deserve to be treated or ignored or communicated with or not communicated with in a negative way. So wherever you see that, um, either make a point, raise it with your line manager, raise it with your peers, see if your colleagues feel the same. If nobody believes that you're right, then get out because nobody's listening to you. Um, and if it doesn't change, set yourself a period of time, maybe three months maximum, and if things don't change after you've raised issues and concerns, then again, I would already be looking for another job. Thank you for mentioning this. And yeah, uh, we have been discussing this topic um, uh, many times on our lessons. And uh, yeah, I, I believe that it's a very, very challenging environment nowadays. And uh, the, there is a shift between the managers and leaders. But as you mentioned, this might be even another topic for another podcast. Um, I I think that um, we we thought about or we spoke about many different kind of uh, your professional career, your personal career, uh, personal life. Um, when you look back, is there anything you regret? Interesting. I, I put a personal Facebook post up similar to this. Uh, this is again where, where things <laughs> coalesce, things coincide and you think about things. I was particularly feeling something about this on Saturday. Um, I have a particular situation in my family, which I regret. Um, you know, it's very personal. I can't share it here. You know, I think in life, in 64 years of life, you're going to find something you wish you'd done differently. And this particular situation um, involving Uh, one of my daughters is something that you know I regret anything that's happened that makes it a difficult relationship because again watching that program 24 hours in accident and emergency the one thing that comes through consistently when somebody's in crisis is the importance of their family the importance mm -hmm. of having people around you who understand you not at a hundred percent level but at least are sensitive to your needs and they know what you like and what you don't like that is priceless you know you can't buy that you can't go in a shop and say excuse me i'd like to be treated with respect and honesty you know it doesn't really happen like that you have to work at it over a lifetime and i think those things um being a good person and trying to be a better person everybody sort of says that's quite spiritual it is but it's very easy to do and i don't know why people make such a fuss about it um Sometimes it is nice to be nasty, you know, to really get across the point that you're disappointed in somebody's behavior, but I'm not sure that it achieves very much. Uh, it may express, it may release some anger and some aggression, and some frustration, but uh, it should be short-lived and it's only there to make a point. And after that's passed, you have a period of peacemaking to engage in. And that's probably where in my life, some of my regrets might sit. Um, it's not exceptional. It's not different, it's not unusual, but it's probably everybody's reality. Everybody, if they're honest with themselves, probably has something that they wish 
in their life they had done differently. Mm. Yeah, you, you are right. But yeah, actually, uh, things were done and we are not able to change that. So uh, I believe that, you know, there might be something we are regretting, but it's not in our power to change it. We can just learn from it and uh, make a difference in the future. Um, so I think that we are just very slowly heading to the end of our discussion. And uh, just the last question from my side to you, um, what are the three things or takeaways you would like our listeners to remember? <laughs> About me? <laughs> um, yes, or? <laughs> I, I think uh, I've said often, uh, engraved on my gravestone if I ever have one or headstone will be something like he worked hard and that's probably something that's run throughout my career you know I've always worked hard and that's probably come from my childhood my upbringing where you know you were I was taught by my mother who's still alive still around the corner behind me um not in this room in her own house that kind of hard working ethic or or practice I've carried through into my working life but in my daily life as well I think in my sort of domestic life so that's one thing second I'm somebody who loves to travel and travel can be very enriching but you need to go into it you know with an open mind um, with your eyes open and your ears open that's sure but also be open-minded about what you experience because by definition it's not going to be what you're used to how you react is very important there is something called culture shock which is when you go to a place and things don't work out the way you planned, you tend to get anxious, you tend to get a little bit annoyed sometimes about either bureaucracy or over-administration or something. I've experienced that in Slovakia. Um, or something else will happen and you think, God, why did I react like that? I, I didn't think I felt that bad about things. It can just be because you're not in a known environment. So if you just expect it, it's less of a shock when it happens to you. So in terms of travel, enjoy it as much as you can now that COVID hopefully is on the demise and it's going, uh, hopefully disappearing. Get out there, experience the world, reflect, as you said, listen and, and look and learn from your experiences and enjoy them. Um, that, that's the key. And third thing, language, I think that the aim of these podcasts, somebody said to me, why do you make podcasts? It is to help with language practice, is to help with listening skills, which when many of my students are doing practice exams, some are doing their Cambridge entrance exams at the moment or Cambridge advanced certificate, there are listening exercises in there. Other students in their workplace are doing examinations or they're preparing for language tuition and, and it's part of their assessment process. The listening element is quite hard and it is important to become familiar with different accents, different dialects and different Englishes because I've said before in this podcast, there are many different ways to speak English. There are many different ways to use English grammar. There is no one right way. There are many different ways and that has to be learned because um, otherwise we don't accept that English is a global language. It is a global language. It will be used differently by people all around the world. It's an evolving language. It's a very live language. New words come into it all the time and hopefully this podcast series goes a little way, just a tiny, tiny contribution towards that so that we expose people to different voices from around the world. Okay, thank you so much, John Lawson, 
for this briefly recap and also a very, very interesting conversation. And thank you uh, for giving me the opportunity to ask, as this is also a very important skill to learn in, in foreign language, especially in English. Uh, so thank you again and uh, have a great day. Thank you very much, Maria, and I hope it was enjoyable for you and useful for you. Thank you. Yes, it was. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. Bye.